I can't even tell you how many times I've been compared to Elizabeth Holmes, even to the point of saying like, you're like a Theranos that works. And I'm like, we're, we're nothing like Theranos. And I'm not lying to you. So I'm nothing like Elizabeth Holmes. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how the pandemic shifted the market in their favor, the challenges of being a female founder, and a data scientist's approach to asking the right questions when doing market research. Before our show, I wanted to chat about the storefront signage maker. It's an easy way for any brick and mortar shop owners to let your customers know that you are open, available for curbside pickup, delivery, online information, and more. Customize any message you like, automatically create a QR code for your store, then print it off from home. It's easy and simple to use, no design experience required. Create a sign yourself at shopify.com signage. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Amy Dibaranya from Uva. Uva is an at-home diagnostics company that brings clarity to the complex world of fertility and was started in 2017 and based out of New York, New York. Welcome, Amy. Hi, thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, so can you tell us more about your product and maybe what would differentiate or what might be different about it compared to something that someone might find in like their local pharmacy? Sure. Um, so Uva is an at-home test that monitors multiple hormones through urine. Um, we are the only test in the market that can identify a most fertile days and confirm that she actually ovulated that cycle. Um, in addition, it's a completely personalized experience. So we learn what every woman's unique hormone baseline levels are, and then we detect fluctuations by comparing to that. So we're not comparing a woman to some standard threshold or that perfect woman that we all know doesn't actually exist. It's all based on her own data, and we can really understand what her fertility profile is. The way we're able to do that is we're actually a quantitative test. So you're not just getting a blinking smiley face or trying to see if there's this ghost line present on your test. Um, you're getting an actual number for both hormones every day that you use with test. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think in the, the world of these, you know, pregnancy tests and whatnot, they, it, it's often, uh, again, you're saying it's hard to tell sometimes, right? The, the faint lines and, and whatnot. You know, I guess what's surprising to me is that no one else, you know, big brands have recognized this and done something about it. How did you know what particular features you wanted to have in your version of this, this, you know, diagnostic test? So it's a funny question to answer because I get that question from my husband almost on a daily basis when I'm talking about a new feature. And he's like, how do you know people want this? And I'm like, well, I want this. So I'm mm. assuming there's at least 10 other women that want this too. And so far my gut has been right. But um, the reason that I have a really, like really good insight into this space is because I also went through my own journey with infertility and it really opened up my eyes to the gaps in the space. I think, um, the, the question you asked actually has a much broader answer where women's health just hasn't been given the importance that it deserves. So I don't think larger companies have prioritized innovating in this space. Till Uva came out, it was okay to just provide a woman with a blinking smiley face. That to me is not innovation. And that's, that's ridiculous for a woman to have to rely on that. We deserve to know what's going on inside of our bodies. And we're really trying to embrace that. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing that you, you've taken this on. Now, you mentioned other companies just haven't prioritized that. When I hear you say that, it makes me uh, imagine that the rest of the kind of supply chain or the rest of the stack that's involved, uh, you know, from manufacturing down to, to, to distribution to marketing is probably also 
not expecting someone to come along and try to disrupt, you know, quote, unquote, disrupt this space. Uh, did talk to us more about or were there challenges along the way, along the entire chain of uh, R&D all the way down to getting it on into people's hands uh, that you had to face because it's just not wasn't expected that there was going to be someone else coming in and do something different. Sure. So um, one thing to keep in mind is that my background is really heavy on the science side. So the way that I went about developing this product is I pretty much went like I nose dove into making sure that the data and the product were meaningful. So I didn't come up with like, okay, we need to figure out how to fix fertility or ovulation tracking or make a dent in women's health. Yeah, that was definitely a driver for me personally. But when it came to the product, what I was focusing on was solution. And what I wanted to figure out was how do we figure, how do we identify a solution that can accurately measure biomarkers or hormones in the privacy of a person's home? So in a one-liner, how do we bring a clinic into a consumer's house? That's the underlying foundation for Uba. So that allows us to actually address our product from a scientific standpoint. How can we identify which biomarkers to go for and what are our success metrics and how are we able to hit those? So you're dealing with chemistry and science here versus a use case. And I think the use case and the marketing and all of that is a completely different problem than getting a technology and supply chain to work because there there's a very set uh, protocol that you're following. Yeah. So did this product first, uh, this um, you wanted to make a solution first, not necessarily you know, have a product out, out in the marketplace. Like the, the main thing was I needed something that would work. Did you find that, that, that there was some kind of like, not resistance, but pressure to just, Hey, let me, let me, uh, you know, slap a label on this and get it out. Um, I mean, that's more of an internal pressure than anything external. Right. So like, yeah, there was a lot of moments throughout our journey where I was like, man, like ours is so much better than what these guys are doing. Let's just put it out there. And it wasn't fully validated yet. It, it wasn't hitting the all the success metrics that I had set for the company. And so we we held back. But sitting on the sidelines, yes, it can be frustrating because there's a lot of players in the space and they have beautiful branding and huge marketing budgets. We've never had that. We've really been relying on the fact that we have a product that works. So to be quite honest, the pandemic actually forced us and gave us a huge opportunity to pivot our model pretty substantially. And I think it's actually putting us ahead of the game without having to go down that massive rabbit hole and that hamster wheel of having a bigger marketing budget. Can you say more about that? What specifically about the, the pandemic uh, shifted the market in your favor? Sure. So um, I'll be honest, when we started the company, I thought Uva was going to be a direct-to-consumer company. I wanted to provide a solution to women that weren't ready to go to a doctor and just wanted to be empowered with data about their bodies. If you think about like what the stretch goal is for, for our company, I was like, if we could get doctors to utilize our technology to supplement fertility treatment, that would be great. You remove so many blood mm. draws and you make it so much more accessible to patients. Um, well, when the pandemic hit, fertility treatment was viewed as an elective procedure and all these fertility clinics were being forced to shut their doors. So you had all these families that were kind of left with their hands up in the air going, oh my gosh, I don't know when I'm going to be able to grow my family anymore. So clinics actually started reaching out to us to utilize our technology to do remote hormone monitoring. And that model, we pivoted very quickly. I mean, within two weeks, we had a HIPAA-compliant dashboard so a patient could use UVA at home, scan it with their phone, they get their results in their app, and then the clinician gets the results of their HIPAA-compliant UVA dashboard. That model took off really well. We ended up launching with that in September 2020. 
And we currently have over 90 clinics that are using Uva across the country. And we launched direct to consumer about 10 months after that. That, that's amazing that you're able to recognize this opportunity and and you know take it take it on. Tell me, tell, tell us more about how you were positioned though, so that these clinics found you. Because that that's an effort in itself to make sure that that you're even a a, a good candidate for a solution for them for the for the because of the pandemic. Yeah. So um, one thing to highlight is that I'm a first time founder, and I'm not. Um, and I'm a. I'm trained as a. And I have a PhD in biomedical sciences, so I'm trained in asking questions, and I'm not—I don't hesitate to do that. Um, so when I decided to move forward with UFA, I basically spoke with whatever clinician would give me the time of day, and I was asking them, "What kinds of data would you like to see? How would you want to visualize it? What would I have to do to make you trust my information? How would you use this data?" And over the course of three years that it took us to develop the test you can only imagine how many doctors I had spoken with at that point. And I had so much data. So when it came time to pivot into this clinician dashboard, I knew exactly what they wanted to see and how they wanted to see it. So it, it literally took us two weeks to code and build that. And we launched it. The reason clinicians are reaching out to us was because I spent three years teasing my concepts and I wasn't selling them anything. I was trying to just gather information in a very genuine way. Mm-hmm. And I was a sponge. So even if they were telling me, Amy, this isn't going to work unless if you do these things, I listened to that. And I was really receptive to that feedback. So I think it opened up a huge um, conversation channel for us. And I became a trusted resource for them. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And, and because you've been doing this for so many years, this this inquisitive approach, this research approach to 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 anything, any 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 kind of venture you are, any project that you're starting, venture you're starting. I'd love to hear if you have any advice for anyone out there that could use more of this, could get more clarity about the problem that they're trying to solve, clarity about what kind of solution they should be building. What kind of advice do you have for someone that that just is unsure how to even canvas or survey their their the you know quote unquote marketplace? Just do it. I mean I think, I mean, I wasted so much time trying to design the perfect survey and making sure the questions were leading and like all of those things, but you don't know what you don't know until you start getting data, right? So even if that survey keeps on, you have to keep iterating on it. You have to keep changing it. It's fine. It's a learning cycle. And so every piece, every data point you're able to collect is so critical to the growth of your company. You shouldn't hesitate and wait for things to be perfect. It will never be that. And the moment you accept that, that's that's the critical pivotal point for I think any founder or like any entrepreneur to realize that nothing will ever be perfect. Yeah, I mean, if it's coming from like a data scientist and they're saying this and you're saying this, I, I think people should feel permission to not feel like they have to set up the perfect questionnaire, perfect survey. And do you recall certain things, certain features or certain decisions that you had thought in your head that this is the, uh, your hypothesis maybe that this is the right thing to do? And then when you went out and asked people, it was just completely different. Do you have any examples of big changes that that made sense in your head, but then in real, in, in the the real world, the marketplace, it just didn't, didn't make sense. The biggest mistake I feel like we ever made. And I think I'm still kicking myself for it because like, obviously the pandemic slowed down us being able to react and fix the mistake was when we did our initial packaging design, it said, it says our company name. And then it says the smarter way to conceive on the box that was meant to go into another box. But because the pandemic hit, we weren't able to 
like get supply in in time and there was so much demand that we ended up shipping in that exterior box. So as this package is being shipped around the country, everyone that is touching it knows that you're, you're trying to conceive. Mm. And we completely understand how discreet this space should be. So it was never the intention, but it came off as us having a huge oversight on what our consumer would want. So since then we have updated our packaging, but it was a very like, for somebody that is so in tune with the emotions that go through this journey, I felt like that was a massive oversight on my part to allow that to happen. You know, one one like uh, maybe complaint that that people might see about the the health or medical industry is that they just move slow, right? Things are just super slow. I mean, I log into my insurance and it's like I can't believe the design looks like this. It's like super outdated. Did you, how how come uh, not just from the work that you you and your team are doing internally, but the external factors of the the doctors, the whatever else is involved. I'm not too familiar with the healthcare industry, but whatever else is involved around the periphery of your business, were there no blockers or like how were you able to unblock all of the more external factors towards getting this thing out as soon as possible? Well, I think you have to also remember where we were in the world at that time, right? Like people had to react very quickly. Um, and, and I'm talking about like May, June of 2020. They're, like no one knew what was going on. So now all of a sudden you have these clinicians that still need to practice. They're trying to adopt telemedicine, but they don't have the tools to actually utilize that appropriately. And I'm not even kidding, but I was on a call with a doctor who was telling me that she had to do a telemedicine consult, watching her patients fit into a tube to make sure she was doing it right. Because that was the only at home test that they had at their hands, in their hands. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous because like, first of all, how do you not know how to spit? And then two, what are the criteria that you're making sure it's actually a san- like a sanitary solution? What if she had a sip of coffee before she did this? So um, it, it made the adoption of our tech so easy because the world was just not meeting the demand of what was actually needed for these clinicians. But we were. So I want I want to jump back now to the the kind of um, the years leading up to the product being available the the research the R and D that was involved in all of it. You one thing I mentioned was that you have these like success metrics. Tell us more about that. Like what was it? Um, what was it to you? Like how did you know that that okay this product should continue to move forward and continue to move forward? Like what were the kind of checkpoints that you had um, set up? I mean, like the, the first product that we went after is obviously in the fertility space. It's a very crowded space. There's a lot of technology and like companies that are trying to, to move the needle here. So I, when I started, when I had this idea for Uva, I was really adamant that we are not going to put another product on the market that is just kind of a solution. It has to move the needle. I remember drawing on the whiteboard. These are the five things we have to hit before we take this thing forward. One, it had to be a quantitative test. So I didn't want a binary yes or no or a smiley face. It had to be a number. It had to be personalized. So we weren't comparing a woman to a standard threshold. It had to be on her own data. It had to be clinically trusted. So if a doctor was to get an Uber report, they would know what to do with it. And it would be something they would trust. It had to be non-invasive. So I didn't want this to be a blood draw or anything like that. It had to be done in a very, as seamlessly as possible. And the fifth thing is that it had to all be done in real time. I didn't want patients sending samples to a lab or waiting even hours for results. I wanted it to be within minutes. So those are some pretty hefty criteria, but we started tackling each one, one at a time. And that's why it took us three years to get to where we are today. Yeah. I like, I love how, as you're 
describing your goals, I can almost visualize what you're talking about, the different kind of use cases that needed to be checked off in order for you to say, like, hey, we accomplished this milestone. Do you remember any kind of inflection points throughout the, the, the those first few years of R&D where things finally felt like they were kind of rolling downhill more rather than like, you know, trying to get anything to work? Yeah. So the, and there's two major points. The first was um, we were originally going to have a device associated with the product where you would pee on a stick and then insert it into some sort of a machine. And then it would give you the results through Bluetooth onto an app. But after going through like some supply chain, like research, like really rudimentary, and then looking into some research that showed like how, how frustrating a Bluetooth connection can be. I mean, we deal with our AirPods all the time. Like it connects half the time. It doesn't the other half. And I was like, with data, you can't, you can't do all that. So we ended up removing the need of a device. And I was like, okay, let's figure out how we do this all on a phone. And that was a huge pivot for us because it removed such a burden on the supply chain for the, the company. And it also opened us up to be really innovative because nobody was doing that. And then the second big pivot, or I guess uh, inflection point for us was, I originally thought we were going to go to market with a quantitative glutenizing hormone test that's only focusing on identifying your fertile window. When I was on maternity leave, I, we did a beta test because I was really fortunate. My baby was super good. And so I was able to do a beta test and work while I was on maternity leave. And um, we sent an Uva kit out to 300 women. That was, it was 3D printed. It wasn't something beautiful. I just said, pee on this, scan it with your phone and give me your feedback. Almost every single one of those 300 women responded back with saying, it'd be great if you had a quantitative progesterone test as well. And I was like, well, yeah, that makes sense because you want to confirm that you actually ovulated as well. So then we hit the ground running and we went back to R&D and added that hormone to our test as well. When you mentioned surrounding yourself with, with people you know, that were experts in this space, how were you able to find the right you know, people to put into, into, into place to make all of this work? I mean, things are obviously very different pre-pandemic, but like I love being social and talking to whoever will give me an ear. Um, I'm also very much a sponge. So I think when you try to have conversations with people where you're truly trying to learn and not just kind of siphon information out of them, they're a lot more receptive to help, like helping you. I've also been really fortunate to surround myself with amazing advisors, both personally and within the company. And I don't hesitate to ask for help. And when you're that open to acknowledging like, okay, I am not the expert here and I need to bring somebody in that can actually guide me, then you get really invaluable feedback back. Mm. Okay. So now as you're going through this, this process, do you remember how many, the, the moment where you're like, okay, this is the version. This is the version that I'm happy with that hits all the success metrics. Let's like actually start getting this thing out into production. That was, um, I want to say, like the fall of 2019. Okay. So right before the pandemic, we were. I, I was like at that point. Okay, so in fall 2019, you you you're ready to, to to kind of you know produce this at, at a much larger scale than you were at before. How did you already have manufacturers lined up? It sounded like you were kind of you know ran to some roadblocks along the way. And to me, you know, maybe it's different because you're in that industry. You you you've seen it, but to me, this seems like a a niche manufacturing that you had to find out. Like, is it is it what is that like in the, in this space? Yeah. So I mean, I. There was a lot of, I don't really want to say it was foresight. I think there was a lot of luck that helped supported me throughout this whole piece. Um, so I was ready to launch this in fall of 2019. 
And the plan was to roll out like a pre-order and then we'll fulfill in Q1 of 2020. And we would order the first batch and manufacture the first batch and kind of see how things go, like launch it as a beta. Well, one thing I did not know about was that China has a Chinese New Year where everything shuts down. And all of our plastic components were manufactured in China. And so all of a sudden, like I had all the biochemistry done that we do that in the US, but none of the, it wasn't going to be cased in anything. So we had to either place a really big order before the Chinese New Year, or it would get delivered after the Chinese New Year. And so we ended up missing that because I had no idea. So we had to push our launch and it, it actually ended up helping us out because then when the, when New York city shut down, um, we ended up having all this inventory and we didn't know what to do with it. And then we ended up pivoting to this clinical channel that allowed us to utilize it all. Um, to, to your first question about how do we source these guys? I just really leaned on partners that we trusted that we had been working with for the previous few years to help like develop all this technology. And they all need people in the industry to help kind of give, do the introductions, help with brokers and deals. And again, it's just being a sponge and willing to ask for help when needed. So once you, once the, the pandemic hit, did you recognize that there was an opportunity here? Like what was the feeling internally at the company? Like this is going to be rough. Like what, 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 what were your thoughts at that time? Well, it was, it was really an odd moment because we ended up closing our seed round the week before New York city shut down. And so all of a sudden we are finally funded and it's like, okay, well now what do we do? Do we just sit on our hands and ride this thing out or do we do something? And if it's going to fail, it's fail fast and hard. And so we obviously decided to go with the latter because I don't think as an entrepreneur, you, it's really in your blood to just sit around and wait for things to happen for you. Um, and it ended up being one of the best decisions I've ever made because we were able to pivot so quickly and really embrace a problem in the industry. So it, it sounded like the the, the biggest um, uh, customers of yours at first were, were people that were these clinics or were doctors um, getting it out into their to their patients. Is there also an angle that that, that has grown, or rather, a, a sector that's grown where people are coming to your site and and buying? It? Like, what's the kind of breakdown of like? clinics using it versus, um, you know, direct to consumer people going to your website and buying this for themselves. Sure. So we actually started uh, really pushing direct to consumer. I want to say January of this year. Um, prior to that, a lot of, like, I mean, we haven't really been marketing this yet. Um, it's been very organic to date. So because we have almost 90 clinics that are using the technology, um, they were the main drivers of people coming to our website, but women talk. And if you are able to help one woman conceive, she's going to tell all of part of her friends. And so the direct to consumer piece was always there. It was just never formally launched, if you want to, if you want to call it that, until July of 2021. That that makes sense. Now, did you find that the clinics and doctors are they different customers than than the woman that would be buying it direct to consumer on your website? Meaning, like, are they looking for different things? Um, when, when you, based on what you've observed so far? Yeah. So they're using, um, what I love to say is that Uva is kind of a data collector for these clinicians and for the patients, right? A use case is ovulation detection and confirming ovulation, but that's not what we are. So while women can use our data, like consumers can use our data to just kind of understand what their fertile window is and whether they're ovulating or not, clinicians have a completely different utility for that. They're able to get trend analysis on their on these two hormones. They're able to understand if their treatment protocols are working. They can supplement their treatment protocols so the patients don't have to come in daily for blood work done. 
um, they can also intervene if needed. So if a woman is, woman's progesterone is dropping, they can actually intervene and provide a progesterone supplement to ensure that the, that a pregnancy could stick if that's the case. So there's, there's a lot of different utility on the clinician side. Um, that's really exciting for us. Hey, real quick. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Now, you know, you mentioned earlier about how you closed your, your seed round right before uh, New York City shut down. And one thing you mentioned to us was some of the challenges that you've had given the, the fact that you are a, a woman founder and that that there are just you know, challenges that, that exist that you don't, that, that probably would not be, that, that are not challenges for a male founder. Tell us more about what that's been like. What's the challenges that you, that you face along the way and, and what kind of advice you would have for other founders that, 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 that are like you? Um, well, there's two anecdotal things I can definitely hide up, highlight here. Um, the first is I can't even tell you how many times I've been compared to Elizabeth Holmes. Um, just being like, even to the point of saying like, you're like a Theranos that works. And I'm like, we're, we're nothing like Theranos and I'm not lying to you. So I'm nothing like Elizabeth Holmes. So what, what does that analogy mean? Um, and I don't think a male counterpart would get that. They might get a comparison to Steve Jobs, but not to Elizabeth Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is, um, I, many times, like, and many still feels like too few of a, way to explain how many times this happened to me, but when I'm in diligence with investors, a point that keeps on coming up is that I don't have a business background. And I feel like that is such a cop-out reason to, to like when you're evaluating me or the company, because business is something that I don't even, I don't necessarily feel like you can learn. There's things that you can get exposure to if you have a business background, but being an entrepreneur and being in the weeds day in, day out, making your own PNL and, managing your own finances for the company, that is how you learn how to really do finance for a startup. And because I don't have an MBA, that's actually been held against me multiple times in indulgence meetings. And I don't feel like that would happen had I not been a woman. And and, and when you're facing these, these situations, I can't, I think one thing you mentioned to us was, was about being able to grow a thicker skin. Obviously that that's, that's helpful for, for your own kind of mental health, but how do you kind of, or do you, well, guess what's your advice on how to, um, you know, deal with these situations so that it's not detrimental to your business so that you can kind of sure. respond in a way that that's actually, you know, cause it sounds like people are, are, are putting you in a box and that box is not helpful. How do you get out of the box to help your business? Well, I think you have to remember that the people that are putting you in the box are not the only people in the world and um, definitely know your weight, your own worth and accept the fact that you are the smartest person when it comes to your company. No one knows better than you. So when I was in those positions where people are comparing me to things that I'm definitely not, or I I don't want to be, I've also realized that they're not the investors or the partners that I would want to be involved in my company Mm -hmm. because they're only going to be, the relationship doesn't stop once they give you the money. It's that's the start. And if they don't see you the way you want them to see you from day one, how are you going to change that vision going forward? That's a horrible position to be in. You need to be focusing on your company, not how other people are perceiving you. So I think it's about having that courage to walk away from people that are putting you in a box and looking for the right partners. Mm, that makes sense. It's almost like they're doing your favor by showing their true colors 
early on exactly. so that you're not getting into this relationship that's going to, you know, blow up later. Okay, so now you had mentioned that there was a, um, this this year's when you're focusing more on direct to consumers. Were there things that you've learned though? Because like, again, you, clinicians are using it, like these doctors that are working with their patients are using your product. Were there iterations from that kind of, uh, that, 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 that market, like where you're, where you were learning things about how it was being used, what kind of good things, what kind of things can be improved that allowed you to make changes or are there any changes between that and, and now, now that you're going more direct to consumer? I mean, I want to say that we're making changes on a daily basis. Um, mm. we, we get feedback from our users all the time, whether they're from the clinician or direct to consumer, it makes no difference to me. It's, it's somebody using my product, right? So we just try to service anyone that is using our platform to ensure they're getting the data and information that they need. Now, when it comes to the growth of the product, like we're literally making improvements to the app experience, the like tweaking some of the analytics to do the biochemistry more accurately. Um, I mean, you name it, we're always iterating. It could even be like just a couple of weeks ago, we added a new feature to our website so people could do free consults with an UBIT team member to answer their questions. And that's been a huge like learning point for us because one, we're collecting so much information from potential customers about what's holding them back or what we're not communicating properly. And we're able to answer their questions so they can be a little bit more alleviated as they're deciding whether it was right for them or not. I like that. I'm, I'm looking at this now and it's just like, you know, a 15 minute consultation um, with, with, with a prospective you know, customer of yours. What are some things, and I, I think this can be applied to almost any industry where you can be of service to to your prospective customers or your users. What kind of things have you learned from from having these, you know, 15 minute conversations? Oh, there's so many things. I mean, I've figured out that like, one of our biggest consumer base are women that have a specific reproductive disorder. And I'm like, we need to do a lot more education about that to the, the, the community because we can show that we will work for those types of women. Um, we've also realized that the way that the pricing was listed wasn't very clear. So we made modifications to that right after I heard that twice. Um, so it's just been like, it, it sounds like very minor things, but each one of those minor things adds up to a reason why somebody won't convert. And if you can fix those minor things quickly, why not? One thing here that we'll love to kind of uh, dive into more is like around uh, pricing. The pricing wasn't clear. We'd love to hear more about that. If there's any kind of takeaways that the audience can take about how they can make their pricing more clear. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, pricing is probably one of the hardest things that you're ever going to have to do when you're running a company, right? There's no formula for it. It's, it's really like let the market drive what the price should be to an extent. Um, so like, I'll be honest, when we first started, we like the price was significantly more than what it is today. But we listened to what the market was saying. And we worked to make our costs go down a bit more and we were able to reduce our price point. It's still high compared to like what you would get at your drugstore, but you're also getting substantially more information with our product than you do from like a local ovulation test. So there's, a lot more, there's a lot that we learned about how to communicate the value of the dollar that we're putting behind our product. And so we do that with a lot of the supplemental marketing that we do on social and other channels so that people can understand what they're buying before they actually buy. We've also realized that there's a lot of learning and content that we could put into our abandoned cart email. And that has been driving a ton of traffic since we made those switches. 
And because you again you have the the kit plus the the app, when you are developing uh, enhancements or even you know new products, uh, I'm sure that there's things going on behind the scenes now where you're shipping new things. How do you kind of line this all up? Because like, like I mentioned before, if you're have a much more simple you know business where you're just improving one thing or you are just, um, you know, shipping a brand new version of one thing is a lot easier than when you have a couple moving pieces that are dependent on each other, right? The heart, the, the, the kids and then the app, how do you kind of, um, project manage all of that? I mean, there's no, there's no trick to it. It's really being on top of everything. At times it gets crazy, especially when we're ready to launch the new product design. I mean, to say that the two or three months before we did that was sane is a complete lie. Um, but like I said, like you hire people and surround yourself with partners that know what they are doing. So you don't have to take the burden on yourself completely. You can share it. And that's something I really love about our company because we've instilled this, um, culture of family and that you're not in it on your own for anything. Even for like investor pitch decks, my team is involved in helping me create those because they're being represented in those slides. So when you are looking at hiring people to 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 join the team, uh, what's your what's that process? Because it sounds like you have a, a good understanding of like where the pieces need to be, and that the team that you are hiring is you know f- effective and executing. What's your what's your approach to to hiring? So we're a really small team. It might not sound that way, but we are. And the reason that we are is because we're all so effective in what we do. So what. I'm I'm so involved with the company, right? Like I'm the one that's answering our support tickets. I'm the one that's like overseeing every department. I'm not micromanaging. I'm letting everyone do their own thing. But I do have weekly check-ins with everybody to make sure that one, they're not being overworked and that they're happy. And then two, that the work is meeting the deadlines we've set, we've collectively set. So that has been great. What that also allows me to do is see where the gaps are and really understand what the gaps are. It's not like, okay, Amy, we need to hire two engineers. I, I know exactly which two engineers we need, what their responsibilities are going to be, and outside of just what's in the job description. So that's a huge component because I'm so in the weeds of it, I can understand that. The second thing is that the culture is a huge component of our business. We are, our company currently is focused on helping other families grow. And there's a huge emotional tug there that you need to understand. Uva cannot be just a job for you. It has to be a passion. And we look for that in every single employee that we bring on because then there's a different level of care in everything they're doing. Mm. Is that something that's easy to identify, like a gut instinct that this person is passionate about this problem that, that you and the team are solving? Like how do you, how do you uh, kind of pull that out during, you know, I'm not sure what your process is like, but, you know, during an interview or something, how do you kind of, how do you, how do you pull that out? It's, it's not that easy to figure that out. And I will say that like there happened some calls that we made incorrectly, but we try to rectify that as quickly as possible. Um, but like, I'm also learning, right? Like I, I come from a science background where I wasn't necessarily hiring people left and right, um, or recruiting or anything like that. So I've had to learn kind of on the job, but it's about asking the right questions. And I can't recommend enough to give every single candidate a work product because that's when their true colors really start shining. And you can ask questions in a way that actually gets them to think and not just like Google an answer somewhere and they paste that in. It involves them to put some thought, their their background, their emotions, their their feelings into what they're writing and what they're providing to you. And so you can get it in a different way. And then what's also important is not just 
submitting you the work product, but presenting the work product to you. Mm, I like that. I've, I've seen other companies do something similar where they kind of have like a backlog of, of like those starter things that, that people just can't have time to get to that are kind of great candidates for, um, to, to, to be used as like a, like an interview, quote unquote interview project that they can, mm-hmm. they can run with. Um, now, so once someone has been, has, you know, passed the kind of, that, that kind of screening phase and they're in, what's the onboarding? Like, how do you make sure that they are, are, you know, brought up to speed? Well, and I think this is um, 100% a work in progress, but um, like we're about to bring bring on several new employees and I'm like, oh my God, what does our onboarding process look like? On the technical side, we're fine. It's really easy for us to onboard them on the technical side, but it's more about all those soft things, right? Because we're not in an office, we're still remote. So you can't just like hand them something and be like, okay, just kind of go over this, sit in a meeting with so-and-so for two hours and get up to speed. It's a little bit more um, hand-holding to an extent. So we're still figuring it out, but um, I mean, everything in our company is very transparent. So once you get into our drive, you have access to everything. And I encourage all of our new employees to kind of spend a day, sift around everything, um, especially like in whatever area you've been hired for, like focus on that department folder, uh, but feel free to look around. And it, I schedule a meeting like usually 48 hours after their first day to just answer any questions they have, anything. It doesn't have to be role specific because we usually do that the first day, but anything that they have about the company and it, they may or may not have anything, but it opens up that door that you can approach us whenever you have anything come to mind. And I think that's more critical than like actually answering specific questions they have. It's about a feeling that you have to kind of convey in a remote setting. I want to talk a little about the the website. You had mentioned that you know the technical side, that that onboarding is easy, and I would love to learn more about what's going on kind of behind the scenes with the business, specifically um, focused on the website right now. Is the website all built in house? Like, did you is there is it that contracted out? Like, how how was this built? Um, so we had a branding team design it, and then I we had um, a developer create a custom theme for us on Shopify. When you went into the design for this, did you have an idea of what was important for you to have on the website? Yes, but um, that has drastically changed, and I wish I knew then what I know now. <laughs> yeah, what's that? Tell us more about like kind of some things that you've learned um, about needing or not needing on a website. So, like for example, I think when designers build things, they look very much at how how things flow, like how how beautiful things are, like the colors are all matching and all synchronized that way. Um, what that ends up leading to is a very hard-coded setup, and we, it didn't give us the flexibility we needed to pivot quickly. So, for example, if I wanted to add like a press section in the middle of my home my homepage, I can't do that at the moment. I can only put it on the bottom or the top of my entire homepage, and so that's frustrating, right? Um, but it's a lesson learned that now any page that we do in the future, we want to make it flexible that we can quickly pivot mm-hmm. if needed. When you when you were setting up this website, were there specific uh, apps that or tools that that you you, you um, that you rely on to to keep the site running? Um, there's several. Uh, we use Recharge uh, pretty heavily because that's we have, a, we have a subscription model. Um, we also utilize Klaviyo for all of our email marketing. I probably can't recommend that one enough. It's it's been pretty great so far. Um, and then the other one we use is Okendo for reviews. 
You mentioned that it's a subscription product. Is that usually how people buy for the first time, or do they have? Do, I see here you, know, you can also buy this once. What's the typical entry point for for a new customer? So over seventy five percent of our orders are subscription orders. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty insane. And the thing, the reason is because the data is so sticky, and we're aware of that. Um, the fact that women are actually understanding what's going on with their body is something that they have never had access to prior to Uva. And our, I mean, like our sales there totally highlight that. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing. That, that's such a huge percentage. And it, it, I think it just gives you so much more, um, uh, so much more stability in the company right now that yeah. you know that there's going to be returning, um, returning customers. Um, so I would love to hear more about um, what is, is next for the business, because it sounds like I'm not, I, I, you never said this, but I almost feel like there's some kind of hint of that. This is just the beginning for, for this home diagnostics is, is, are there plans to, to expand this? You mentioned that the women love being able to understand what's going on with their body. Right now, the use case is is for fertility, but I mean, I don't see why it would stop there. So, any, anything you can share around that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, I, I wish you were an investor because it's like, oh, great, you understand my vision. Thank you. Um, but yeah, we're not stopping at fertility. To me, it's a use case. And the thing is, what we've developed is is a product that's addressing fertility for sure. But really, what we've developed is a way to accurately monitor biomarkers through urine in the privacy of your own home. So now if we, whatever biomarker we can measure, we can create a use case for that. So the ultimate goal of UVA is really bringing a, a clinic or a lab into a consumer's home. And so the next product that we're actually in, working on at the, at the moment is um, a perimenopause diagnostic that we'll be rolling out later this year. Um, and then we're also planning on expanding into other areas of health, such as men's health, infant health, chronic disease, other areas of women's health. I mean, the, the list is pretty endless for us. That's amazing. So uva.life is the website. And, you know, lots of, you mentioned lots of goals, lots of expansion going on. What do you think is the most important thing for you to personally focus on um, in this business that you think is going to be, have the biggest impact on its, you know, continued success? Hiring, getting the right people involved. I mean, we're about to scale pretty quickly and making sure you have the right humans kind of leading the charge there is the biggest asset of any company. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and your advice, Amy. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.